from my personal opinion, you know, to make it really big in biotech investment, for example, you need to be specialized primarily on that because it does require a specialized dedicated team, PhDs on the subject, great network, great synergy with existing portfolio companies. And when you are a more generalist investor, it's very difficult to make things work because you're not only in the business of looking for the best deals, you're also in the business of supporting their growth. And if you cannot do that adequately, then the likelihood is even a great company would fizzle out sometime. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome, Alexander. So today we have a special guest uh, on our podcast. So Alexander is from Khan Ventures, and it's based in Singapore. Um, so you invest in uh, tech stuff. I understand deep tech and all that, right? So maybe you can give us a brief background about you know, where you're from, what do you do, how did you get into ventures, etc. Yeah, thanks, Elaine, once again for inviting me to speak. As I've mentioned, I'm originally from Russia. But ever since I was very young, ever since I was 12 years old, I uh, left uh, for the UK to study in school and later at university. And uh, back then for me, it was a very different experience. I had to learn English almost from the sign language because it was so difficult to adjust the accents, fast uh, all the slang that we could not learn in the Russian school but adjusted fairly quickly. And after graduating from university, I went to work in investment banking. After a couple of years, realized that we got to work on great deals. It was quite well paid, but at the junior levels of hierarchy, we just did not get as much responsibility. So I moved over to private equity, also based out of the UK and worked on pan-European deals in tech and industrials. And over the time, uh, because the team was relatively small, I did get to network quite a bit with entrepreneurs whose businesses we helped out are quiet. And for me, it became really interesting. What's it like to be an entrepreneur myself? But uh, because of my own background, it was not in tech. So my business, it was much more traditional in its nature. And me and a partner of mine, we imported wines from exotic destinations, for example, from Latam or South Africa or Georgia. And we mm -hmm. sold them to the UK, bars, restaurants, hotels, you name it. Did the business for three and a half years. Really interesting experience. Learned a lot until a certain point back when Britain decided to leave the EU. And in terms of business, especially not a large corporation, but mid-sized business in the traditional industry, quite a lot has changed in terms of the delivery chain, in terms of the cost that we had to pay, for example, logistics. And as a result, business became less profitable. So I sold my stake quite successful at the time because the trends were still on the up. It was not the COVID kind of catastrophe for the alcohol industry mm. and decided perhaps, you know, it's a good idea to take my money, go back to the investment industry, but wanted to try something new. So after my foray into entrepreneurship, I did start earlier and went to work for a venture capital fund. It was based out of San Francisco in the States. So I lived in uh, San Fran for three years from 2018 to 2021. 
And the fund where I worked, it was an early stage fund. So we did seed and series D deals primarily, and then followed on at later stages with uh, bigger money. Mm. And just like the fund where I work at now, we also specialized in the field of deep tech. And as you might or might not know, deep tech is quite a broad field that includes areas like robotics or space tech or quantum computing or autonomous mobility. And we had quite a great portfolio, companies from North America, from Southeast Asia, from Eastern Europe. And part of our strategy was to arbitrage between the emerging and developed market in terms of valuations and perhaps some mistakes which entrepreneurs from emerging markets make, but founders in Silicon Valley or in London have already learned how to solve. So I stayed there at the early stage VC fund until 2021. Mm. And just Brexit put a thought into my head that perhaps it's time to change countries and consider (laughs) change in employment. In 2021, I realized that San Francisco, wonderful place, but quite a few problems, which only exacerbated due to COVID. Mm -hmm. And when a lot of people, be they entrepreneurs or VCs, are now being stuck indoors without an opportunity to socialize or go out to public places, it's much quicker to realize that San Francisco, quite a small village, Mm -hmm. no matter how you look at it, especially if you compare it to the bigger hubs. And in 2021, I moved over to Singapore and... We started up Khan Ventures. It's a late stage firm. So we do primarily Series B plus also in deep tech. And to be honest, comparing it to my early stage investment days, I would say that personally for me, it's much more exciting because the investment strategies and the portfolio management that we get to do, it's much more pronounced in that we have greater resources to perhaps organize late stage M&As or help them expand abroad or work with our portfolio companies to help them secure financing or big contracts with corporations. While, for example, at the earlier stages, VCs, they are helpful, but it's normally to do with some key introductions or maybe hiring additional C-level members as a startup grows. And... Ultimately, earlier stage VCs at later stages, they are mainly just sitting on the cup table if it's a medium-sized fund. So it's not as easy to provide the smart money. Mm. Uh, and other than that, Elaine, so other than my current work, I'm also doing quite a bunch of other stuff. Once again, coming from Russia, I am very passionate about investments in emerging markets. Mm. I did have first-hand of experience back when I was working at the US fund, investing in regions for, like, for example, Eastern Europe. And right now I am working with governments of two countries in Pakistan and in South Africa to help them build up their local innovation ecosystems in Pakistan it is to attract EFDI from Western economies to set up a network of R&D centers on the basis of their uh, technical universities, as well as to launch uh, their first uh, government-backed VC fund. Uh, which is uh, quite a notable accomplishment for them because, Mm. for example, if you compare Pakistan to India, in Pakistan, it's still much more about the impact problems, right? So access to clean water, to electricity, to financial services was underbanked, yeah. And as a result, it's still a lot of things that need to be done and strategized for the high-tech sector to pick up. So, yeah, having my hands quite busy, but I must say that it's... uh, a good opportunity to get out of the office every now and then and see how people live, how do they think and what trends are yes. across the different countries. 
Yeah, I think you have a pretty interesting perspective because you're from emerging markets. So am I coming from Asia, you probably see the world very differently. And how has things changed since COVID? Before COVID, it was like one world. And then after COVID might have changed. What's your view? Has the dynamics of this world changed? Are startups it used to be globalization, right? VCs want startups to expand globally. Has, has anything changed ever since, you think? Look, so when COVID struck, I think that the major change was the fact that a lot of VCs uh, began to understand that they cannot do uh, as thorough of a due diligence process uh, as before. A lot of uh, founders were stuck indoors. A lot of countries were just closed due to quarantine. For example, China, right? It was mm. the last country to open up. And as a result, a lot of che- a lot of checks started to be written, even without a face-to-face meeting, which for me is a, a curious occurrence because to be honest it's very difficult to give money to somebody without seeing how he is as a person because zoom meetings unfortunately cannot cut it every time so for example for our fund what we uh, ended up doing is just to push uh, all the physical due diligence and the face-to-face meetings to the latest stage and then be able to do all the client things and all the background research beforehand just so that we still optimize the time Mm -hmm. and another notable aspects that change due to COVID is the fact that so much money was being poured into not only the COVID vaccines, but also the health tech, the biotech field, because everybody understood that COVID vaccines would be growing, yes, but also the related treatments would as well. And part of those treatments could also be useful to treat other epidemics that can come after COVID. And uh, a lot of money was poured into by the family offices, by corporations, by VCs, by the governments. And To be honest with you, Elaine, now looking back, I would say that quite a lot of those guys who invested due to the formal fact and hype, they failed because they were not specialized investors, right? From my personal opinion, to make it really big in biotech investment, for example, you need to be specialized primarily on that because it does require a specialized dedicated team, PhDs on the subject, great network, great synergy with existing portfolio companies. And when you are a more generalist investor, it's very difficult to make things work because you're not only in the business of looking for the best deals, you're also in the business of supporting their growth. And if you cannot do that adequately, then the likelihood is even a great company would fizzle out sometime. That's uh, in the midst of COVID. After that, I would say that major changes were, for example, a slight breakdown in the Silicon Valley system, right? So quite mm-hmm. a lot of foreigners, they left for their home markets, like, for example, Indians to back to India, Chinese back to China or Southeast Asia, because uh, they increasingly realize that there are so many opportunities to grow their business, to fundraise, to do business development back in their home markets, especially mm-hmm. when they have an advantage of Western education, Western work experience, and at the same time, the Americans, they are building up hubs across the states, like, for example, in Texas, in Miami, in Colorado. So Silicon Valley, sure, it's still great, the tech hub of the world, but there are other hubs opening up. And for example, for VCs who are still looking into the uh, developed markets rather than the emerging ones, those little hubs are an opportunity to source the relatively undervalued opportunities and to be more meaningful when it comes to building up the connections with entrepreneurs. Mm. And the last thing I would say is that, for example, it is more meaningful for, for example, the earlier stage or for emerging fund managers to perhaps consider the emerging hubs 
But for the big VCs, what I have personally seen is that they do one of two things. They either go to the major markets and try and arbitrage the differences in valuation and the differences in what the international smart money can provide in relation to the local investors, even if those local investors are somewhat bigger, mm-hmm. or they're going earlier stages. So for example, their main business is growth stage, but they are opening up seed stage funds or acceleration programs. And as a result, they're able to source innovation at a stage where, yes, it's more risky, but it's also much more meaningful to the entrepreneur. And once the entrepreneurs realize that the VC is actually helpful, not just saying it, Mm. then they're able to allow them to get in at a more appropriate valuation when the startup does grow to, for example, the growth stage. And for the VCs, another benefit uh, of that strategy is the fact that they're able to see how the business is doing at an early stage from the inside rather than relying on the uh, publicly available information. And Mm -hmm. as a result, when it comes to investing or not at the growth stage, they would be able to make a more refined decision. Okay, that's interesting. In terms of emerging market, what's your perspective? Which, Which markets are interesting and how do... Uh, the tech startups that you invest in, how do they find product market fit? Look, so Elaine, I think that there are emerging markets and uh, there are emerging markets. Like, for, for example, for us, Africa is not a region at all that we consider because a bunch of great countries, some of them are growing rapidly. But in terms of tech, especially deep tech, it just so many years uh, down the road before any significant infrastructure in that field would be built. And the entrepreneurs from there, they would not only be able to access the local markets, but also expand internationally, not as an exception to the rule, but on a more meaningful scale. Mm. So in Africa, for example, when it comes to investments, I would say that the major field would be the impact investments, right? Like, for example, access to electricity, financial services, consumer technologies, maybe marketplaces, maybe delivery services, things like that. So not as much about tech as about intimately knowing your consumers, being able to offer the meaningful price and being able to access resources that the local investors, not the international ones, can provide. When we, for example, look out for our investments, it's normally to do with Southeast Asia because Southeast Asia is a more varied bunch. Like, for example, there are more first world countries, like, for example, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, And then there are others like Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, for example, where similar problems exist to, for example, Africa, but because of the proximity of very big funds and corporations in the region from Southeast Asia, it is easier for them to find the right solutions and Mm -hmm. to perhaps expand not to the States or to the UK, but to the neighboring countries. For example, for us, to answer your second question about the product market fit, when we're working with our portfolio companies and early stage and they have not found their product to market fit yet, we are first of all looking at uh, what kind of capabilities do they have uh, in their local markets? Because if they are coming from an emerging market where uh, there is very little in terms of infrastructure, very little in terms of investors that can support them from idea stage to perhaps the pre-IPO stage, so before they're going public, then it makes the most sense to find the product market fit in a bigger market, right? US, UK, Germany, for example, because yes, 
in the very beginning, it's very risky, but then uh, it is much easier for them, in fact, to actually leave everything uh, and take the innovative idea to a market where perhaps it could be more appreciated. Problem mm. with scaling a business which already has local revenues and investors and employees in the market, which is relatively small, is the fact that for founders, often case, it could be counterproductive to drop everything and risk in the bigger market because they are almost becoming complacent and not willing to do as much and not as hungry because they are being fed by the revenues in the local market, even though they might be relatively smaller. Even though sometimes VCs say that it is too early to expand somewhere, there can be also instances where it is just too late. Mm. So for us as a deep tech fund, when it comes to product to market fit, what, for example, the thing that we are looking out for is for the entrepreneurs, not perhaps to focus on securing as many patents as possible at the earlier stage, because we do appreciate that it is often case quite expensive and does take a long time, but it is mainly for them in the earlier stages to have the right vision, to have the right team when it comes to being able to attract the guys who are not only good in technical aspects, but also, for example, in marketing, in product development and strategy, and them being really well worked together so that when things do go wrong and in the early stage startup world, they do often case, they already know how the other person would react. And as a result, yes, there may be a pivot. Yes, there may be slightly more money required to make the product successful, but the company itself, it would not go bust, right? Because this is the worst thing. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to our sweet stages in terms of the growth stage and beyond, I would say that the most important thing that we look out for would probably be the, the ability of the entrepreneurs to really scale the idea internationally, right? And that can take many forms. That can take form of a key M&A, which sometimes we are really help, happy to help out with mm -hmm. in a market where they would want to expand them, but perhaps they're not as strong in, right? Or perhaps it is to scale a product into a product line, or maybe it is to help them with signing key corporate contracts. And ultimately, it does depend on the field because, as you might know, deep tech is very broad. It includes hardware companies, it includes software, it includes many different things, some of which take a long time to R&D, some of which take slightly shorter to the market. And as a result, when it comes back to the product to market fit, it is really a discussion by itself. Okay. Can I, can we clarify for the audience? Your fund is focused on the Southeast Asian investors. How about the founders? Are they from Southeast Asia or are they from other places? Look, we have some of our LPs in Southeast Asia, so the investors into the fund. Okay. But in terms of our investment focus, it is actually quite broad. So we do look into Southeast Asia, but mm -hmm. we also look at the developed markets because honestly, Elaine, for the Southeast Asian investors, even if they're big, even if they're on the corporate level, often cases it's quite difficult to reach the best deals in Western Europe, in Canada, in the US for a bunch of reasons. And as a result, when those investors are investing in funds, uh, it is a good opportunity for the funds and it is a good opportunity for the investors themselves. For us, we do consider quite a bunch of geographies to build up a diversified investment focus because the bigger markets like the US or the UK they also have a bunch of their own unique problems, like, for example, overvaluation or huge competition, especially at the later stages when it comes to not competing only with the local guys, but also guys from 
Singapore, from Europe, from Latin America. And as a result, it is much more difficult to win allocation into specific deals. Mm. And for example, if you're a foreign investor, it is increasingly difficult because you need to spend more money and more time to build a physical presence. You need more time to actually get the right uh, marketing channels involved and things like that. Mm, okay. So when, when you invest in emerging markets, like mm-hmm. how are things different than investing in developed markets, for example? Look, sure. So for example, back when I was working at the US fund and we invested in Eastern Europe, I would say that one of the key differences that is not present in the US, for example, is the fact that the founders in Eastern Europe and Russia, in Ukraine and Belarus, they tend to be much more technical in Mm. their approach to scaling the business, right? So they focus on trying to build as technologically sophisticated product as possible. And I'm not talking about consumer apps or marketplaces. I'm talking about deep tech or hardware. And a problem with that approach is things that there is no end to technological perfection, right? Technology and innovation moves more rapidly than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And as a result, when you are trying to spend as much money and fundraise as much money as possible to build your MVP, to do your patents, likelihood is you would be very quickly outpaced by the guys in Silicon Valley, in Shenzhen or in London Mm -hmm. who are not focusing on technological sophistication as much as they are focusing on trying to fundraise and trying to sell, right? Mm -hmm. So in Silicon Valley, for example, it's so much more about how quickly you can commercialize. And even though those commercialization channels might not be super pronounced or big in terms of the revenue generation for investors, it is actually a sign that if they would put more money into the company at such an early stage, then it would be just adding more coal into the fire rather than to kickstart a car that is standing still. And as a result, those entrepreneurs, they would be able to use that money, once again, not for the patents, but perhaps for marketing or for establishing those first contracts and scale them from pilots. And ultimately, this is how guys from Silicon Valley, one of the reasons why they're able to make businesses which are more internationally well-known and scaling much faster. But when it comes to, for example, Silicon Valley, it does, once again, suffer from a bunch of its own unique problems. For example, uh, in the deep tech field, uh, it is relatively easy to understand what kind of technology your competitors are doing, especially if they are making their patents public, especially if they are quite active in the marketing domain. Because ultimately, especially if you are a PhD on the subject and you are working for a VC or for a startup, you are likely to understand where would the major innovation in a given field, like for example, in quantum computing or in autonomous mobility, they would come from. And Mm -hmm. if you would be following what kind of patents were filed recently or what kind of papers (laughs) are being released, then you would know. And you can potentially steer your own project into that domain so right. what we what uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley do, uh, and to a lesser extent in other markets, for example, the UK, in the deep tech field, they're trying to be in the stealth mode, right? So not try and market themselves too much until 
they have fundraised enough until they have generated a few meaningful contracts to be able to protect their technology and solution against potential corporate or startup competitors. Okay, interesting. So emerging market is less less consumer driven. That's what you're saying. Less consumer driven. And in the majority of emerging markets, the consumer market by itself is much smaller, right? For example, Eastern Europe or Africa or Latin America. Yes, they are growing especially when it comes to Latin America, but there is no infrastructure that can support the entrepreneurs. Very few investors there that can be actually helpful when it comes to overseas expansion. And in countries like uh, India or China, uh, where uh, the key difference from uh, a bunch of other major markets is that in the consumer market size, they're much more meaningful. So a company from an early stage can and uh, if they do have a meaningful project, can and will grow up to be a, a unicorn, but still they are suffering increasingly from the problems which are faced by startups in the developed markets, which is once again a huge competition, overvaluation, sometimes lack of understanding or lack of desire to expand abroad because sometimes they don't even need to. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in India and in China, you would increasingly find that they are being paid uh, great attention by the Western investors who are looking to diversify their uh, portfolios mm. and at the same time still source the emerging technologies. So I would say that for growth stage investors in consumer technologies or in deep tech, maybe China would be the best as long as you can access it because due to the current tensions and political instability, yeah. sometimes it is not possible. But India uh, could be great as well. Ah, okay. Yeah, because China and India are two of the largest population emerging markets, right? Do you see it? Is it consuming <laughs> or it's still developed markets that are more interesting and have potential? Mm. Good question. Look, I think it does depend on what kind of variable you're looking out, right? So, for example, when it comes to the average uh, population age, then China does suffer from uh, the pension bomb, so to say, like the US, for example. But when it comes to the general level of development of infrastructure, like, for example, an ability of entrepreneurs to scale their company Mm. from idea stage to a big company, it is much less of a case, for example, in India than it is in the US, because a lot of entrepreneurs, even if they're passionate guys with a great idea, Sometimes they don't know how it's done and there is very uh, there is not as much available in terms of the best practices which they can apply. And even if there are, and even if they were, sometimes they just don't know where to get them from, right? And yes, there is a bunch of information available from the West, but still it needs some time for the right lessons to be drawn and applied from the Western markets to India because India is just so unique and authentic in terms of the business practices, in terms of mm. how startups fundraise and whatnot. To go back to answering your question, yes, from certain perspectives, they are quite similar, but there are many differences which both the entrepreneurs and investors can take advantage of to build a meaningful product or to launch a fund with a unique investment focus. Mm. So even with returnees, for example, Indian who were born in India, educated in the West, went back, or also Chinese? Like, how is that? 
you know. Actually, Elaine, I think that for them, it's a golden time right now, because as I mentioned, for the past 10 or so years, Indian and Chinese economies, they have grown up quite rapidly. Yes. And uh, a lot of opportunities did emerge that were not even thinkable before. And at the same time, government became far more active in terms of supporting those entrepreneurs when it comes to not only providing grants or office space, but also launching different programs to do with innovation or acceleration or supporting them through giving them access to potential corporate contracts or access to local investors for financing and at the same time, uh, for example, when you look at the emerging markets, you would also see that a lot of investors from the developed markets are also once again coming to India, to China to diversify their investments. Often case, um, guys who uh, were from India and who launched and successfully sold the um, startup back in Silicon Valley, now they're being supported by the same investors when mm. they're thinking of of doing a business back in India, back in China, right? And it is a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm. Problem, once again, with India or China, another problem is things that there are not as many serial founders out there, right? It is still quite a lot when it comes to, for example, for the due diligence process for VCs, it is still quite a lot about actually building up the right deal flow because there is not as much information available about mm. the entrepreneurs who have already done it, who already know how to sell, how to fundraise. And it's still about seeking the opportunities which are sometimes hidden. While, mm. for example, in Silicon Valley, it is much more about networking, about winning allocation for the most competitive deals. So the game is slightly different. Yeah. I guess in Asia, it's also a lot of family and friends networking more than just meeting well, somebody uh, at the party. <laughs> it is a lot about that in Asia, but it is still a very similar to that in the States or in the UK, because especially, for example, when it comes to family office investments, mm. uh, a lot of them, for a bunch of reasons, they are unable or unwilling to do as um, comprehensive of a due diligence process when it comes to early stage or later stage deals in comparison to, for example, the VC funds or corporations. And as a result, they do end up investing in the deals which were recommended to them by their family, friends, or their uh, mm. related family offices, right? And as a result, sometimes they do not get into the best deals. Sometimes they do end up overpaying. And mm. when it comes to, for example, the culture of investments in Silicon Valley or uh, in the UK scene, it is still very much dominated by uh, your own network. Right. And actually in India or in China, I would say that those networks are just not as firm and not as developed. So it is still the case, but it is much more informal and more grassroots in its nature. Mm, okay. Are there any cross-cultural stories from the startups that you've invested in and, and how they get to product market fit? Are there um, success cases or cases where they couldn't figure it out? Look, for example, when it comes to earlier stages, I would say that if you are a company from an emerging market who seeks to go to the bigger one, like, for example, from Eastern Europe to the States, mm. I think that it is very important for you to plan out your journey in that you have to understand that for the investors in the U.S., yes, you might have customers back in India or back in Russia or back in Bolivia. For them, it's not validation. 
because they do understand that the consumer habits are very different. The purchasing mm-hmm. power is greater and the features, the product features that are demanded have to be much more sophisticated because in the bigger market, there is just so much more competition in terms of using as a consumer product of company A or product of company B or a bunch of others, right? You do have to build a more sophisticated product. And because there is not as much money when you are coming from an emerging market, sometimes the companies that do end up being invested in by the seed stage or early VCs in the Valley that are coming from the emerging markets, often case, they are actually much later. So a late series A or something like that, because for the Western investors, otherwise it is just too risky. Mm -hmm. And for entrepreneurs from emerging markets, before that time, they just do not have enough resources, right? So often case, for example, a lot of entrepreneurs from emerging markets they use accelerator programs like, for example, Y Combinator as a springboard for giving the access to the Western investors and the market. Right. Problem is YC, Y Combinator, they are preceding seed stage accelerator. And when it comes to emerging markets, they're dealing with companies that are series A. And as a result, for the entrepreneurs, it's a gamble because they are giving away a much more significant chunk of the equity for a relatively small amount of money. with an implication that if everything goes well, then they would potentially be able to make that money back when the demo day would hit and they would be able to pitch it to the right investors. And without YC, quite a few of them would have found it much more difficult to Mm -hmm. perhaps get as much in terms of marketing or local market access. So it is a trade-off, but still... I think that like for YCs themselves, they're still very focused on Silicon Valley or the US or the UK, because even though they're an accelerator with a modest operandi of risking, they still don't don't want to risk too much. So like at one point, they did have a program back in China, which they abandoned and they did consider other regions. And right now, they are mainly sourcing those companies, but still through their major Mm. headquarters location. They did end up in the process where not everything went as smoothly. I guess Y Combinator is like a stamp of approval. So once they get through it, right? Like uh... I would say that it was a more of a stamp of approval maybe eight to nine years ago. Okay. Because like any major program, they did arrive at a bunch of changes, some of which were not as perhaps well thought out, some of which were meaning, but did not arrive at the result they originally intended. For example, one of the big problems for them just for a bunch of others was the onset of COVID, right? Because everything had to be online. And when it's online, you don't uh-huh. get as quality Very in different. terms of face-to-face hours. You're not as able to engage with mentors. And yeah. in uh, any given accelerator program, this is what distinguishes, you know, a great, great program from uh, a run-of-the-mill one. Mm-hmm. And another problem uh, for YC, at least from my own personal perspective, was the fact that they were increasing their budget sizes so significantly mm-hmm. and once again it does mean that quality well, connections yeah. are harder to come by and yeah. they are working more for the mass right so right now they are still one of the best ones if not the best but right now they're still working much more from the historical reputation rather than from the current results and they're still they are looking to 
diversify into different verticals. For example, they are also having their, not only the acceleration program, but their Series A fund, which mm-hmm. is able to follow on. Because ultimately, if you're a very early stage investor, the case is you're getting in at a floor where it is still very risky and mm-hmm. you're uh, giving away the bigger rewards to the investors who come after you. So mm-hmm. you are often is diluted very fast. Uh-huh. And when you are investing, you when you're able to follow on, for example, at Series A, because you at YC, you are able to have a look at such a diverse bunch of companies and invest on paper in the best ones, then you can follow on as well. And that's a more meaningful investment model, especially since it does get an opportunity to potentially fundraise from very well-known angel investors or other LPs. And mm-hmm. as a result, they're able to get a bunch of uh, smart money for the early stage fund as well, not only the acceleration program. I see. How about the other way around? How about uh, if uh, the founders are from developed markets and going to emerging markets, uh, is it different? Look, I would say that for the founders from developed markets, the majority of the founders who do expand, Elaine, going once again back to our favorite examples of Indian China, just because the markets there are bigger. And if you have a relatively innovative product and a scalable business model, mm-hmm. it's slightly easier to repeat it in the bigger market, even though there is more competition, because you do have an advantage of Western investors. Western brand name, greater marketing budget and whatnot. While if you're, for example, going to a market like Vietnam or Malaysia or let's go to the other side like Brazil, yes, yeah. they are growing markets, but there is very little in terms of infrastructure. And for you, it will be more disadvantages than advantages. I would say that when it comes to uh, transfer of know-how and products, I would say in the smaller emerging markets, you would mainly find the local entrepreneurs who are trying to copycat the Western (laughs) business models and products who were successful there and apply them to the local market rather than Western entrepreneurs coming to those markets themselves and building something there. And the problem with local entrepreneurs trying to copycat the Western product is the fact that it would be very difficult for them to build an international business and international recognition because they would not be able to compete as effectively with the Western competitors from whom they have originally copied the idea, right? So the likelihood is they would be having to be content with the local market, maybe expand to a bunch of neighboring countries, but still it's not going to be such a huge business. Mm, Okay, so what are the biggest mistakes to avoid for these companies going to other markets? Look, I think that it does. Are are you talking about entrepreneurs from emerging markets or entrepreneurs from developments? Actually, both. When they go to other markets, what's the biggest mistake to avoid? Look, for example, if you are a guy or a girl looking to build a business in the emerging market when you are from the West, for example, I think that one of the key things would be to actually choose the right local partners, right? Mm -hmm. Because likelihood is they have very different business culture, especially when it comes to Asia in countries like China or in Japan, they're much more hierarchical in terms of the decision-making processes. They are much more long-termist. While, for example, in the States, if, for example, a corporation does not want to purchase your product, they would be very quickly telling you that, hey, 
as a stage for the owner of the business this year. But at the same time, there would be much more forthcoming, perhaps in terms of what needs to change and how exactly would you need to approach it in order to have a more meaningful business relationship. In mm-hmm. Japan, maybe you'd find the same in a couple of years if you're lucky, right? It is much more important about getting the other side to trust you. So without the local partners, it is very difficult. And often case, not only the local partners, but also your own physical presence, right? So the founders need to be in a country, need to be Mm -hmm. in a country. They do not need to be flying back and forth because it does take a lot of time and it does lead to quite a lot of stress, but Mm -hmm. they actually need physical office presence. So you need as the founders to be located there to make the sales to understand the market to fundraise from there because often case it is much easier to fundraise from the market where you are selling because the investors they want to see metrics in that specific market for example if we consider the entrepreneurs from emerging markets right one of the key mistakes that i see them doing is they are focusing too much in the beginning of attracting as much money as possible from local investors. Mm. And those local investors, depending on the market itself, they can be either not super helpful Mm. or downright detrimental when it comes to international expansion. Why is that, Elaine? So look, once again, for example, if you look at Eastern Europe, for example, a bunch of investors here, they're either government or government-backed corporations, right? And in the best of times, there are... There is quite a bit of political tension, lack of desire of Western investors to buy companies which were invested in previously by Eastern European corporations for a bunch of reasons. For the entrepreneurs, it is once again a case of deciding the best time when they would stop expanding and getting investment from a local market and then focusing all they have on the overseas growth. Right, mm-hmm. because there they can be a point when it's too late. And another problem, which I saw quite a bunch of entrepreneurs from emerging markets making, is that they try and just relocate as much of their business as possible overseas without mm-hmm. taking consideration of the cost. Because yes, it does make sense to relocate the founders yet it does make sense to relocate the sales team but when you look at the major markets quite a few of them have great technical talent which is much more cheaply and easily acquired and they do have often case very good technical uh, capabilities which can be taken advantage of right i think that a good strategy needs to be when it comes to expansion and the entrepreneurs do need to take advantage of a bunch of resources which are available in the West when Mm. it comes to, for example, getting access to grant money or accelerator program support or perhaps mentorships or some other sources which can support the business, maybe like on the software side in terms of R&D or on the hardware side in terms of the laboratories, which quite a bunch of programs provide. A lot of entrepreneurs from emerging markets, when they expand, they just don't know about that. So they end up making a lot of mistakes, which cost them time, cost them quite a lot of money. While the entrepreneurs who are born in the Valley or growing in London and are already aware of that, even if their product is less innovative originally, because they take advantage of those opportunities, they're able to 
around hoops around uh, the guys from emerging markets. So it's more mature in the in terms of the community support, indeed. Yeah, and resource. Indeed. Okay, interesting. So, any success cases you found your investments or others where you know going to emerging market or the other way around, finding product market fit. Sure. Look, since we are talking quite a lot about the emerging and developed markets, one uh, of the companies I've had experience of investing in, it was an Eastern European company originally out of Russia, to be precise. We as investors, because back then we invested in earlier stages, we gave them some money, helped them to secure local traction, got them into Y Combinator. Y Combinator once again, for some, it's a stamp of approval. For others, it's just an opportunity to get access to the local market because otherwise it would be very difficult. So they got into YC and what they've had back then, it was a solution for PA, right? So robotics process automation. And even though the market itself, it's relatively competitive, right? So there are bigger guys, for example, UiPath and a bunch of others quite a lot of the solutions that did exist back then, they were mainly for the large corporate space, where, for example, the companies that we backed, they were focusing on the small and medium enterprises. And from my own perspective, that kind of approach is great because ultimately it does take slightly less to convince those early stage companies to actually give you their business. And once you grow, once, once they grow, your business with them also grows, right? Because they're able to afford larger checks, maybe give access to greater functionality. So those guys that we've invested in, they got into YC, we helped them out and that we really gave them an opportunity to fundraise even before the demo day from a bunch of investors in the Valley. And when it comes to YC, closing around before the demo day, it's considered great because it does mean that the investors who got access to your decks and your pitching capabilities beforehand, they really do see the value in your idea. And perhaps, yes, they can uh, overpay, but they don't want to compete with anybody else when, come, when time comes to you actually presenting in front of uh, a bunch of others on the demo day. So after that, what I think that company I'm talking about did really successfully is even though they were an Eastern European team originally, they focused very heavily on securing team members from the States, from Western Europe, helping them with R&D, with selling. And as a result, they were quite quickly finding out that they had the opportunity to secure more business than their original capabilities have allowed them, right? So they were much more focused on uh, getting new salespeople or marketing than perhaps would have been even more feasible for them in Eastern Europe. So yes, they've still kept the Eastern European business, but for them, it was just a gateway to support their growth in the States. So I think that once again, when it comes to entrepreneurs from emerging markets, there needs to be a certain revenue stream, which they can use from their home market to support their overseas growth, because without that, it is much more expensive and it is much more likely that it would actually fail. It is very important to understand the local markets, know international trends, know how people think. And this is why quite a few people fail. Mm, yeah, it sounds like they need to understand their own strengths, like in their home mm. market, and also yeah. understand, especially in the US, maybe sales and marketing will be the kind of skills that they need 
right? And and focus on that. Okay, maybe to summarize, what, what will be the one takeaway from this interview that you want the audience to learn from? Look, I would say if you're an investor in uh, UK or the US, I would say that no matter what your investment focus, it is very important to still consider the emerging markets because even if you're not investing there, because you're not, you're not mandated to do likelihood is you would face an increasing number of competitors for your portfolio companies who are coming from the emerging markets, especially mm-hmm. if you are in a hot field, for example, artificial intelligence, quite a big bunch of guys now are growing in China. And because of the lack of understanding of many Western investors and startups of what is actually going on, because for the Chinese companies and the government, sometimes it is not necessary to reject their successes overseas. Sometimes a lot of people are only finding out when it's too late mm. and when they already when they have already lost the race, right? Mm. So at least keep in mind whatever is going on. And this can be best done by either networking with a local VCs or startups or attending conferences there, or at least if you are more technically oriented, do have a look at what kind of maybe papers are being published or what kind of innovations are being spun out. And if you are a startup, I would say that, especially if you're coming to, from the emerging markets, don't expand too early, but also don't expand too late. Do try and think how to leverage the limited resources that you have to have a more strategic approach for expansion. So think, for example, what kind of jurisdiction would be best for you normally when it comes to the jurisdiction? The best one would be a market where, first of all, you would be making the majority of your sales. And second of all, where the majority of your investors could be potentially coming from. Because Mm. in case one and in case two, it will be much more likely that they would be willing and able to do business with you And they will be willing and able to give you the money as an investor, right? For example, in the States, there are several jurisdictions in Europe. There are a bunch, not only the normal ones, but also the offshore ones. For example, the Isle of Man. And when it comes to the offshore destinations, there is always a trade-off when you are an entrepreneur. Because yes, it is cheaper and quicker and sometimes less scrutiny when it comes to opening up a company, but also when it comes to obtaining investments from the local VCs, they might be slightly more hesitant because they would be perhaps looking under the microscope as to who you are, where your original money came from, because there is uh, obviously certain stigma associated with those jurisdictions. But also, like for example, when you consider Guernsey or the Isle of Man, they are actually quite supportive when it comes to supporting early stage innovation. For example, Guernsey, it does have a bunch of programs related to financial technologies, which gives them sort of a sandbox to try out, try out their ideas or give access to local banks or to local corporations for potential pilots or contracts. So do uh, think it through properly and uh, keep in mind of your costs, because even though right now it's not a time for COVID when you just had to save every penny, still your investors would not want your rounds to be spent on golden toilets or expensive rides for your friends and family at the Disney event, mm. which sometimes does happen if you laugh at it or not. So for emerging markets, where is the money trail? Where, which, which part of the emerging market are the money going to, you think? <laughs> I would say that once again, if it's not India or China, 
I would say that quite a bunch of Western investors, they're looking at the developed countries in Southeast Asia, which ones, for example, Taiwan, especially when it comes to hardware and semiconductors and AI. Taiwan is great, especially for the US guys because of great energy yeah. <laughs> transfer links, because of great corporate links. Other than Taiwan, South Korea is an increasing destination, even though in terms of the size of the local market and in terms of the sophistication of infrastructure, it's not as developed. What is interesting about technology in South Korea mm. is that, for example, if you look at the US or the UK, you would find that the elderly population is often case quite aloof when it comes to being adjusted to all the technological trends like robots and restaurants mm. or self-service displays in airports, supermarkets or whatever. In South Korea, it is not the case because the elderly population is actually much more technologically sophisticated and they are yeah. uh, very quickly adapting to those trends. So the market is actually slightly yeah. bigger. And once again, South Korea does suffer from the pension bomb as well. So the elderly yeah. population is increasing. But in terms of the technological market, it is not a problem, right? Yeah. Other than Southeast Asia, once again, I do not think that Africa is a meaningful market at the moment. And mm. even if you look at Africa, it's not the whole continent, but rather a bunch of countries, like for example, South Africa or Nigeria, where like in South Africa, you have slightly better infrastructures and the rest of the continent slightly better support in terms of the investors of the government. While for example, in Nigeria, you have the advantage of rapidly growing population, increasing mm. purchasing power of the consumer. So more opportunities to scale the business. Uh, in the Middle East, I would say when it comes to tech, uh, very few hubs, it's more about real estate or infrastructure or delivery Oil. services, <laughs> renewable energy. Yeah. And in in the region of Latin America, I would say that it's actually quite a good mix. So there are deep tech startups that are emerging because the infrastructure is growing rapidly. And at the same time, there are consumer apps, ride-sharing, delivery services. Latin America and Southeast Asia would be the two major hubs in the emerging markets that I would personally look out for as an investor. And for the entrepreneurs coming from those regions, I think that there are quite a few opportunities that do exist both for fundraising and for business development and subsequent expansion. Mm, fast, super interesting. Thank you mm. so much for your time, Alexander. How can the audience reach you? You have link LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach me out on LinkedIn. Happy to network, provide advice. Uh, even if you know, if you, even if you're an early stage entrepreneur, I've previously worked uh, as a part of the early stage fund, did a bunch of angel investments of my own. So happy to help you guys avoid the mistakes which some of uh, our portfolio companies uh, found out too late. Okay. All right. Thank you, Alexander. Thank All you right. very much. Thank you.